FYI, this podcast contains spoilers. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 89 of the podcast that goes snicked. I'm your host, Jason. Hey, remember when we used to call prostitutes working girls? Venable. And uh, yeah, it's just me tonight on a uh, bonus flashback episode. We're going to look at uh, Wolverine Year 8 Part 1.5. We're going to look at a smattering of Wolverine guest appearances in his 8th year. We're also going to cover a couple of Sabretooth appearances. That's actually uh, what we'll start off with. Kind of catch up with Wolverine's old arch nemesis. See what he's up to this year. So yeah, that's uh, going to pretty much be it. So, alright, here we go. Okay, so we're going to start off with a couple of Sabretooth stories. Power Man and Iron Fist, numbers 78 and 84. The first one's going to be kind of hard to do because it's basically based on a really not that creative mystery. We don't actually see Sabretooth, but it's technically listed as as his third appearance and I want to cover it due to the nature of this podcast. Pretty much impossible to talk about the issue and maintain any of the real mystery because why else would I be talking about it? But we'll kind of do the best we can. So we'll do our credits real fast. Number 78 is written by Mary Jo Duffy with pencils by Carrie Gamble, inks by Ricardo Viamonte, letters by Jim Novak, and colors are by C. Scheel. Scheel. Chalet. I don't know how you say that. And that cover is by Carrie Gamble, and it's a black space and it says El Aguile is b- or Aguila is back but he wishes he wasn't. We have Iron Fist and Power Man and El Aguila standing there. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Anyway, they're all standing there ready to fight and there's this big claw coming at them with blood dripping off of the tips of the claws. It's pretty sweet. It's actually a, a pretty nice cover. So I like that cover. On the other hand, we did have issue 84. This is also written by Mary Jo Duffy with pencils by Dennis Cowan, inks by Steve Mitchell, Jim Novak is still the letterer, and Christy Sheil is the colorist. And this cover kind of has, I don't know, what would, what would you call that background? Is that like kind of pop art or... Yeah, it's basically like it's a red and blue kind of patterned background. It's kind of retro, cool looking. I guess in the 80s it probably wasn't retro. It was probably cutting edge. <laughs> anyway, it has Sabretooth attacking Luke Cage and Iron Fist fighting Constrictor. And it's by Dennis Cowan and Carl Potts. 
And the actual one in the background is probably the best part because the art kind of sucks. So it's not a very good cover. So in 78, there's a girl who gets attacked in an alley. Power Man and Iron Fist break it up. And Agina, the quote-unquote avenging eagle, as he calls himself, but either they don't know Spanish or he just kind of takes that word on his own because, um, Agina just means the eagle. <laughs> anyway, he informs them of quote-unquote the slasher. We see the slasher and Frank. Frank gets on to him for slashing, but the slasher says he can't help it. So, Power Man and Iron Fist come up with a plan. Misty and Colleen will dress up like working girls, aka hookers, as bait for the slasher. Power Man and Iron Fist will follow, and the Gide will play a lookout, you know, saying, Look up here! Look up here! After a false alarm from a would-be John, Misty finds the slasher over a victim. She attacks, but Frank butts in. Elegine, Elegina, I don't know, I feel like I'm completely butchering that. I'm a gringo, so I'm going to say the eagle. The eagle rescues Misty, who hurts the slasher with a bionic punch. Our heroes surround the slasher, but Frank had gone off, and he drives up crashes into them with a car and they all get away so there's six months between that appearance and the next appearance and i'm guessing other stories <laughs> i haven't read them but i'm assuming they're there so we start off in issue 84 with the slasher is guess who Sabretooth, and he wants revenge on misty he attacks her roommate, Cage's girlfriend, instead. She's a model, but he mutilates her, so no more modeling. Cage loses it and lashes out at his friends, who are good friends, because they help him anyway. His friends are friends forever! Yep. Luke and Danny hustle the street and find Sabretooth and Constrictor at a jazz club. There's a brawl. Iron Fist eventually takes down Constrictor. Luke eventually gets Sabretooth by the neck and is going to kill him, but Iron Fist calls him to his sense. The bad guys are arrested. Everything is okay. The model heals miraculously. Just groovy. All right. So in uh, number 78, gotta love 80s gangs. Random mash potch of people completely diverse there's no ethnic gangs in comic books or tv everybody gets along and intermingles which you know would probably be better you know assuming that gangs could be better anyway and it's always like punky people and there's always a guy in a leather vest with no shirt and there's always someone with a mohawk and a headband and dreadlocks and someone's got a chain and there's various degrees of tank tops and sleeves and all that good stuff. Anyway, this gang that's attacking this lady is in full effect. You also gotta love 80s hookers. When uh, Colleen and Misty dress up like working girls, they are really um, putting on the style. <laughs> Look pretty crazy. And 42nd Street. That's where I want to hang out. Here's the panel on one end of the street. We have Peepers, an adult bookstore, live dancers, more live dancers, a place called Rome, a marquee that says Sweet Young Things, a billboard that says Sex, <laughs> a billboard that says Teenage Anything. That's scandalous. Then a, a strip club called The Hungry Eye and Little Girl Blue. There's a lot of like uncomfortable almost pedophilia on this page i don't <laughs> kind of feel dirty but yeah 42nd street that's that's where i want to hang out yep 
So, platform shoes and shenanigans. There's a part where Misty uh, tries to run, but she's not used to wearing platform shoes and she falls all over the place. And the slasher uses a knife, which is interesting since, you know, six months later we find out it's Sabretooth and um, he basically has knives for fingernails. But, you know, want to use a real knife instead, right? Well, he is. I mean, he's, he's in this, like, scarecrow-looking mask and a leather jacket and loose clothes and trying to trying to hide his identity because he doesn't want to ruin the job he's in town to do this is all just fun it's not work that's pretty much that issue (laughs) and then in issue 84 we get the art change oh i do want to say that carrie gamble's art which has been pretty decent it's really good in this issue i really enjoyed it quite a bit then we get to 84 and the art change to dennis cowan who is atrocious? We start off with a panel of Sabretooth and Constrictor on a rooftop. Constrictor looks pregnant. He's gained weight in all the wrong places. And Sabretooth looks distorted and horrible. And that's pretty much the uh, standard for the art for this book. We start off with a horrible panel and it pretty much stays horrible the whole freaking comic. But at least at the beginning, Sabretooth has all his teeth. But then later, his mouth looks like the Sarlacc pit where he's got a whole lot of gum and a lot of space between these gnarly, like, shark teeth that he has, which is not Sabretooth, and it looks atrocious and horrible. But we do get a thing where he calls Misty a frail, which is a Sabretooth thing, so that's cool. But I know it's 82, but Mary Jo Duffy, I don't think I'm comfortable with uh, Luke Cage saying, Yes, mama! Yeah. Even back then, that's pretty damn racist, and I just don't feel comfortable with it. Sabretooth does say something about Luke Cage being his first fair fight. Uh, of course, we don't know the history with Wolverine yet, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't really hold water anymore. Um, Alright, so 78, the art's really good, and the story's okay. I'm gonna give it three out of six claws. Number 84, the art is horrid, and the story's not that good, not very well written. Um, I'm going to give it one out of six claws. And as far as the Sabretooth appearance overall, I don't like it. I know we're still early, and maybe I shouldn't judge it on what I know about Sabretooth now, but I'm, I'm trying not to, and I think even if I read it back then, this would have kind of turned me off to the character. I, I, I do like the idea that like he couldn't control these violent urges. So even though he was in town to quote-unquote do a job as a mercenary, basically, which is what he was back in his old appearances, and he doesn't want to blow the job, I still don't think he would wear a disguise. Like, I like that he has these urges that the job's not enough. He, needs, he still needs to go out and, like, kill people for fun just to be violent and nasty because that's what Sabretooth is. I think instead of dressing up in a stupid costume and being quote-unquote the slasher i think he just would have it would have been part of the hunt is not getting caught so he just would have stayed saber-toothed and just bet on the odds that he could get away with it and nobody would see him and or recognize him or whatever or that if there were witnesses he would dispose of them that to me sounds a lot more like saber-toothed than dressing up in a stupid costume and trying to be a serial killer. Also, I, I think even not just knowing Sabretooth, I think back then, we're talking about like all these animal instincts, kind of the hunter versus the prey. I think 
kind of hiding in plain sight fits that more animalistic character anyway. Even if you don't know Sabretooth's future, just the way they're describing him, it makes more sense, I think, to not, to just, just be a hunter. Just be on the street hunting people and not worrying about covering his tracks so much. Because if you're stealthy enough as a hunter, you have nothing to worry about, right? So anyway, I just don't think it's a very good Sabretooth story. I think it's weird that they leave you hanging for six months in this comic. I mean, I didn't. I read them back to back. But if you had read this in real time, that's a long time because the slasher doesn't appear in the inner intermittent comics. So Sabretooth is in there as a slasher. And then six months later, they're like, oh, yeah, remember who that slasher guy? Yeah, he's Sabretooth. No, he's just not very well written. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the gist of, of the whole Sabretooth thing for this episode. So anyway, hopefully the next time we see him will be a lot better and a lot truer, a lot more of the things I like about Sabretooth. I like the nastiness and, and the violence, but the rest of it doesn't really match up. Oh, and actually, I did want to say a couple other things. There is a part in, a, a, it's in 78 where Sabretooth is attacking, and he, gets, he has these gloves on when he's using the knife, and he gets the glove ripped off, and his hand is brown and gnarly. And you can kind of say, well, maybe he's just wearing his costume underneath, and that's his glove, but he has all this hair. And so it kind of almost makes me wonder, the only reason I'm convinced that they intended for it to be Sabretooth all along is because we know that Frank is a constrictor, and they've been a, a team since Sabretooth's second appearance. But his hand doesn't look right <laughs> at all when he takes the glove off. It looks like some like weird goblin monster, and not like Sabretooth. Also, as a parent, we know he's a mutant and has hypersenses and all that, and you know, the claws and stuff, but apparently they haven't determined his healing factor yet, because after Miss, Misty punches him with her bionic arm, he talks about how much it hurts, which is fine. I mean, healing factor, you still can break ribs, they just heal back, right? But he tells Frank, he goes, when I heal from this, if I heal from this, I'll get my revenge. And, you know, Sabretooth would have known if he had a healing factor or not. So... Yeah, just two more things I don't like about these appearances. So, anyway, all right, now we can move on. I've, I've said my piece. I've bitched enough about what a horrible Sabretooth story this is. Okay, so moving on to our main man, Wolverine. Our first little guest appearance is going to be in Micronauts number 37. Microverse? Yes, it, they are right, the Micronauts are the original Microverse heroes. Boo. <laughs> yep. So, um, this is, there's a reason they call it the microverse. No, the danger room. And it is going to be written by Bill Mantlo, making his triumphant return to the podcast that goes snicked. Keith Giffen and Greg LaRoque are the artists. Danny Bolinati is the embellisher slash inker. Uh, Jim Novak is the letters, or does the letters. And Sharon, I don't remember his first name, does the colors. And the cover is by Greg LaRoque, and it's not bad. It's basically the Micronauts in their ship, and they're looking out at a giant Nightcrawler face. Yeah, so I've never really read the Micronauts. Um, if you've heard me and Cameron talk about our uh, mythical box of comics that we got from um, this guy at our church when we were little kids, and we kind of split them up. In that, I had one of the Micronauts annuals. That I read and thought was okay. But I, I went looking for it when I was reading this. And I couldn't find it. So I don't really know whatever happened to it. I don't miss it too much. But I just thought it was weird. Because I don't remember giving it away. Since I've 
started like thinning some of the the lesser the less the less fabulous parts of my collection. But that means I I misplaced it like sometime in college or before. So and I at that point you couldn't even a terrible comic you couldn't pry it out of my collection. <laughs> so I don't know what happened to it, but it. Is not in my company any longer. So this is now the lone Micronauts issue I have. And I thought it was interesting. This is the last one before it goes to a subscription and comic shop only, they say. You know, because back then you could still buy comics like in grocery stores and bookstores and gas stations and all that. But not Micronauts. It was a group of comics that was going to move to, a, I guess, what you would call a collector's series. I don't know. Anyway, Micronauts number 37. We're going to have to go back a little bit for this one. This takes place after Uncanny X-Men 152. And that issue, let me look real fast. Oh yeah, that was uh, so when the Hellfire Club destroys the mansion. So the X-Men are still cleaning up the danger room. So we know that this is, be- this is before they relocate to the Bermuda Triangle. So they're all going to go out, but Nightcrawler is on sentry duty. He's going to stay home and guard the place. The Micronauts are stuck on Earth with a busted microship. And we meet the Micronauts. We have Commander Ran, who's basically a Lieutenant Starbuck from Battlestar Galactica. We have Marionette, who is Rainbow Bright, all grown up. We have Acroyer, who is basically a cooler-looking Rom the Space Knight. We have Bug, who uh, is actually a good visual design, but his speech is awful. And it's annoying to read. Because he, like, every, like, three times a sentence. It's, it's so annoying. Devil is pretty much beast with a pop belly. Microtron and Nanotron are uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO, respectively. So that's our Micronauts. They, of course, are trying to repair their ship and get back to the Microverse. Meanwhile, speaking of the Microverse... Evil King Argon makes a toxic Avenger, I mean, um, Huntar, to send to Earth to kill the Micronauts. They, of course, fight, and they're flying around outside, and they end up in the danger room where Nightcrawler is still working while the other X-Men are out having fun. Huntar blasts the computers, making the danger room go haywire. Instead of teleporting, Nightcrawler crosses the danger room via obstacles, showing off his acrobatic skills to grab the microship and then teleport away as Huntar is about to issue a FATALITY MORTAL COMBAT! For reasons that don't make sense, teleporting with the Micronauts does a real number on Nightcrawler, and Nightcrawler teleports to the room he wanted to go to, and the Micronauts somehow teleport back outside by themselves. I guess fighting and evading danger room traps fix the microchip because at the end of the issue, they're back off to the microverse. Got it? Good. Alright, so even if Colossus is using hyperbole, it's still really cool that Wolverine loves Indiana Jones. He says he's going to go see Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Colossus is like, Haven't you already seen it 14 times? Alright, so there's so much fake microverse jargon by Bill Mantlo, it's painful to read. Uh, Some examples. Uh, King Argon is the Force Commander. There's a thing called a Thorium Burst, or Thorium Burst. And don't forget the Deadly Death Squad. (laughs) A little redundant. So it doesn't make any sense at all, like I said, but Nightcrawler kind of jumping 
through the obstacles across the danger room is really cool panel work. Like, it looks really nice. You should just teleport, but it's really cool art, and it looks cool. And it does show off his uh, other talents, like his acrobatic ability and his nimbleness. Is that is that the noun for nimble? I don't know. So, also, and a weird thing to get in a Micronauts book and not an X-Men book, we see that apparently Nightcrawler trips on acid uh, whenever he teleports. Because for the first time that I'm aware of, we see what Nightcrawler experiences between teleports. Like, you know, in the act of teleportation. And it's a really psychedelic thing, man. I can't tell if they're trying to say, because they say it's inner space, familiar to Nightcrawler, but alien to the Micronauts. And then they, and they compare it to magnetic forces, which I don't really understand the pseudoscience behind it, but whatever. I think it's Bill Mantlo trying to explain Nightcrawler's powers and not doing a great job. But then everything goes weird in the teleporting, so you don't know if, if this is what he always sees or if it's because the Micronauts are there. I don't know, it does look kind of cool. Uh, but it is definitely weird to, to see something that would seem very important to Nightcrawler in a Micronauts book. Alright, so the art was pretty decent, pretty good overall. Alright, so in the story, uh, the concept of the Micronauts is not bad. And the story in and of itself is not bad. They get stranded on Earth, they need to get back. Alright, so like the idea that there's this like team of like explorers that are like kind of the guardians of the galaxy in the microverse, like it's not a bad concept. Uh, kind of this ragtag outlaw heroes, you know. You can get behind that to a certain degree. And the story itself of them like being trapped on Earth and trying to fix their ship and fighting Nightcrawler or fighting with Nightcrawler and the Microverse like big bad sending a guy to try to make sure they never come home. Like that in and of itself is not a bad story idea. It's just not written very well. The dialogue's not very good and the scripting is just kind of horrible by Bill Mantlo. And I don't know. I know he's a very well-respected comic writer, and I want to like him, but the comics we've read for this podcast by him have not been that great. His Rob stuff was not bad. It was surprisingly all right. But man, this is not really good. And he has some good stuff to work with and just, just can't deliver. So I'm going to give uh, Micronauts number 37 two out of six claws. Okay, so next up we have uh, Marvel Fanfare three and four. Number three is written by Chris Claremont, pencils by Dave Cockrum, inks by Bob McLeod, letters Jim Novak, Glennis Ween is the colorist, and the cover is a wraparound cover by Dave Cockrum of Saron and the X-Men in the Return to the Savage Land. And it's a not great cover, won't lie, not really that interesting. Number four, Lost Souls is written by Chris Claremont. Pencils by Paul Smith, inks by Terry Austin, letters by Janice Chang, and colors by Glennis Ween. And this is a wraparound cover by Paul Smith, also with Saron and the X-Men in the Savage Land. But it's much, much better. Okay, so number three. Basically, Saron's, or I guess really Carl Lycus's girlfriend, has approached Angel. She saw a picture of him in an article about the Savage Land, and she wants Angel's help. So Angel is going to go to the Savage Land and Spider-Man comes with them and basically they are defeated. And they're sent home with their tail between their legs and Angel calls for help, calls on his old buddies the X-Men. Of course we haven't seen Angel since he has stormed out 
of the X-Men uh, disagreeing with Wolverine's membership. He did not think Wolverine should be an X-Men, and he took his wings and went home. But now he needs their help. So the X-Men come to the Savage Land at Angel's request to defeat Saron and Zaladane, remember her from the Garrox storyline, and the Savage Land mutants that Magneto created. Saron is in Garrox's old complex. There's some force field that sucks willpower, somehow. So the X-Men, all the X-Men but, but Angel are captured. And there's also a de-evolution or devolution machine used on Colossus. In number four, Angel finds Kazar and they head for Saron, who is siphoning the X-Men's bioenergies. Angel distracts Saron and leads him away so Kazar can free the X-Men. Brainchild gets rapey with Storm. Kazar and Zabu rescue her. Storm turns off the will-sapping machine, force-filled thing, and the X-Men are able to break free. Saron returns. Storm freezes him, Colossus punches him, and Wolverine slices his wings. Storm blasts him again with some super lightning and drains all his energy, re- resorting him to Carl- back to Carl Lycos. Colossus destroys the evolution, de-evolution machine after they turn the Savage Land mutants back to ordinary, simple, primitive swamp people. The X-Men return home with Carl Lycos, and Professor X cures him. So, in issue three, we get some more, uh, man, Cockrum just loves Sweaty Storm. And then Claremont gives, um, what he calls an abbreviated recap of the first two issues. <laughs> abbreviated my ass. Nightcrawler wants to play Doctor. Hmm. Okay. Guess he'll use that tail for something. On page 10, uh, Wolverine, uh, kind of philosophize, philosophize, philosophies? philosophizes about killing he has this to say what's hard to believe fly boys and we don't do it killing that is more often our capacity to kill is as infinite as our capacity to love and it comes a lot more easily too angel you're down on me because i'm a warrior you're wait angel's going down on wolverine whoa a killer and i'm not ashamed of it but when i kill it's out of necessity or passion this murder as an act of policy cold-blooded and merciless you may not believe me but there's a difference basically he talks about the difference between his killing which is sometimes out of necessity and sometimes just out of emotion versus a premeditated calculated murder <laughs> i think maybe there's a fine line there but i guess it kind of makes sense to in wolverine's mind maybe somehow i don't know there is a nice thing on page 11 where wolverine um what happens? Oh, he gets hit by this giant Savage Land mutant. And uh, they reference that Wolverine rarely is caught off guard. Thought that was cool. And there's a part where uh, Saron hypnotizes the X-Men. So they all kind of see these nightmares again. And uh, there's a panel where it talks about Storm thinks her arms are turned into snakes. But instead of drawing a panel of Storm with snake arms, we just see Storm going, ah, with regular arms. Like it's a comic book. Perfect opportunity to actually show us her nightmare instead of just describing it to us. Um, yeah, that's about it. All right, so in issue three, talking about the art, I guess, before we summarize. Um, not great. It's okay. It's not horrible. Just all right. All right, so number four, I really like Paul Smith's Saron and his Wolverine. 
Looked really cool. Wolverine uh, is rejoined with Zabu. Remember, he uh, we learned about his animal talking power in the Savage Land with Zabu. Um, so he, he gets to gets to see his his saber tooth friend again before he ever in comics anyway meets saber tooth. That's interesting. Uh, we have on page ten, Slave Girl Storm. Kazar says he would rather make love than fight. And he looks like Fabio, so I kind of believe him. The panel of Wolverine slicing through Saron's wing on page 17 is awesome. Then there's this weird thing on page 18 where it says the X-Men can barely fight because Saron drained their energy. But the last few pages was all the X-Men fighting in this big brawl. So I don't really understand that. Page 19, we see Wolverine petting Zabu. And there's a Lyco says, y'all should just kill me. I'm out of control. And Wolverine says, you got a point. And he's, he says he's glad we kill him with a smile. And he's got this big grin on his face. So in number four, Paul Smith, the art is much better. Story, not that good. All right, so Marvel Fanfare is kind of an, an anthology. Uh, the first two issues, the Savage Land story is drawn by Michael Golden, which is looks really, really good. Nice and cool. So Cogner's not bad. He's just, he's surrounded by two issues of Michael Golden on one side and then a really good issue by Paul Smith on the other. And he just doesn't hold up with those guys. At least not to me. I know there's a lot of really big Cogner fans out there, but anyway. All right, so we're talking about the backups real fast. And number three, there is a story written by Charlie Boatner, sold by Trevor Von Eden, Inked by Joseph Rubenstein, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by Ed Hannigan, that Hawkeye and that El Aguila guy again. The Eagle, who looks a lot more like Zorro in this issue. I guess he kind of did last time too, but he really looks like Zorro in this issue. Actually, he looks more like the gay blade, but whatever. Um, anyway, this story's horrible. Yeah, the art's not good, the story's not good. Uh, pretty lousy little backup. And number four, we have two backups. We have, speaking of Michael Golden, we have a Deathlock story written by David Anthony Hoft, or Haft, I don't know. Pencils by Michael Golden, inks by Bob Downs, AAK or RRK, can't really tell. It's an old, old, like, bad DOS script. But he does the letters, Bob Sharon does the colors. That story sucks. Art's okay. Uh, then we have another story about Iron Man. David Wynn is the visual plotter. Dan Green is the inking. David Michelini did the final plot and scripting. Michael Golden did the pencils. Uh, it's a story about Iron Man. It's not good. Pretty horrible. So the backups in both these issues are pretty awful. I'm going to give Marvel Fanfare 3 and 4 both 2 out of 6 claws. Okay, so last we have The Death of Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Marvel Graphic Novel Number 1. This is... Basically, it's by Jim Starlin, uh, colored by Steve Ulliff, and lettered by James Novak. Um, the cover is by Jim Starlin, and it's basically Death holding Captain Marvel and some heroes around him. We have Thor, Spider-Man, Captain America, Doctor Strange, Thing, Hulk, Iron Man, Colossus, Daredevil, and Wolverine. So Wolverine made the cut on the cover of Heroes to mourn Captain Marvel. Won't lie, not really a big Captain Marvel fan, but he's dying. He has cancer from when he fought, uh, what's his name, Toxin? No, not Toxin. Nitro. <laughs> Why I got Toxin. We fought Nitro. Who, in his first appearance, 
I really only know Nitro from uh, the inciting incident uh, for Civil War. And his first appearance is actually kind of cool. I guess I didn't really realize what his power was just to blow up and then reform. I think there's actually a lot you can do with that. So I actually really enjoyed kind of seeing. Uh, there's also the reprint I have has a reprint of Captain Marvel 34, which I think is his first appearance. And it was, it was fun to read. So anyway, when he fought Nitro, he was stealing this uh, Compound 13, which was like the chemical weapon to end all chemical weapons. And Nitro, when he stole it and they were fighting, it started leaking and Captain America, or not Captain America, <laughs> Captain Marvel sucked it all up and kind of went about his business. But it turns out now, years later, that even for his all his universal cosmic powers, this chemical still gave him cancer. And he can't, he can't beat it. He has these negabands, which he used to clink together when he was bonded with um, Rick Jones. And they would flash back and forth to the negative zone. They'd trade places. Apparently it gives some kind of photonic energy, I think is what they call it. And this energy, for a while, kept the cancer in place, but then the cancer mutated to kind of be immune to it. But also, alright, so I guess all the heroes, like the smartest heroes, get together and form a brain trust and try to figure out how to save him. There's a little interesting thing where they talk about why did it take this for them to put their minds to try to come up with a cure for cancer. They should have been using their genius and superpowers to do stuff like this all along, which is an an interesting point from a realistic perspective. Obviously, if superheroes are real, it'd be really awesome if they did that. I guess the point of the story is cancer is a real-life supervillain, and it is. It's a horrible, horrible thing. And kills without discernment. Anyway, uh, so there's a part where they talk about how these negabands are the only thing keeping him alive, but they're also disruptive to any attempt they have to cure him. Like, anything they try to do, the negabands, like, prevents it from working. Or they take him off, he'll succumb immediately, like, he'll succumb to the cancer and die before they can do anything. So it's kind of a catch-22. So basically, Captain Marvel is giving his memoirs, so we get a lot of his history. We get some stuff on Thanos. I didn't realize, or forgot, at the end of Infinity, when he kind of turns into that statue, it looks just like the way he used to look the first time he got turned into a statue. Thanos, that is. Anyway, they basically, they they go to, to move this statue. They're going to take it back to Titan. They fight this cult of Thanos, and that's where Captain Marvel reveals that he's known about this cancer and he can't do anything about it and basically at the end he dies so all the heroes kind of come to, to visit him in his last days and wolverine is among them doesn't say anything he's just in the group and then he's also in the group at the funeral and i gotta say this didn't make me like oh man i'm gonna go buy all captain marvel stuff and read it all but there's something very poetic about this graphic novel and Starlin, I've seen art of his I really like. This was not my favorite, but it kind of has that early 80s thing. I don't even really know how to describe it. It almost looks, uh, the colors look kind of odd and almost brushy. And the inking, the whole thing looks kind of paintery, but then kind of, I don't know. There's there's a visual thing to mid-80s comics. And this actually seems like it may be a little ahead of that. And maybe it really influenced that. It reminds me of, like, late 80s, early 90s Dark Horse and Valiant comics. That's the best way I know how to describe it. But obviously, this is way before that, so credit Starlin for that. But the story is is actually 
quite good. Even the like weird cosmic parts I don't always like. Like Starlin has a way of writing that that's very poetic and very deep and his language and his scripting just really, really good. Even the parts that are borderline cheesy or could be really cheesy don't come off that way because of the context. So it's actually a, it's a pretty good issue. Um, I won't say too much more. And this is one you really either just ignore it or read it. I think you'd benefit from reading it, but there's really not a whole lot to say about it. Really nothing to say about it from Wolverine's perspective. He's just, like I said, he's just among the party of heroes that are, that are there to stand by his deathbed and to go to his funeral. Anyway, it was it was a surprisingly enjoyable read. I'm going to give The Death of Captain Marvel four out of six claws. Okay, so that's going to do it for this uh, flashback episode, uh, Wolverine Year 8, Part 1.5. We got a really uh, kind of piss-poor Sabretooth story, but we did learn more about his urge to kill, and we learned that he doesn't really have a healing factor yet, and he has gnarly hands. Uh, from Wolverine, we learned that he loves Indiana Jones. He thinks that killing out of necessity or just passion is okay, and Angel and Wolverine still don't get along. <laughs> Alright, well please uh, leave an iTunes review, like the Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, at SnickCast. You can find show notes and stuff, snickcast.podbean.com. You can email uh, snickcast at yahoo.com. There'll be uh, a link in the show notes if you're interested in helping Denise run her marathon. No obligation, but if you want to, the the link is there. We'll probably keep talking about that until it's over. Anyway, yeah, that's going to do it for this episode. So, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, The next flashback will be Wolverine Year 8 Part 2. The next regular episode will be May 2014 part two so yeah whenever we see you next it'll be part two so till next time hugs and snicks bye